the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Leftover Crack are a band of drug-abusing, dumpster-diving, cop-hating, queer-positive, pro-choice crust punks. So begins the inside sleeve of Architects of Self-Destruction, the new oral history of Leftover Crack. This book documents the band's tumultuous career in a surprisingly honest and sometimes unflattering way. The authors of this book, who join us on this episode, are John Gentile and Brad Logan. John is a longtime contributor to Punk News, and Brad has played guitar in Leftover Crack for the majority of their existence. Together, they've strung together a compelling story in the words of the people that lived it that may make you like the band more or may make you hate them. Either way, it will definitely give you a sense of who they actually are. What do you like better, Leftover Crack or Choking Victim? Um, Probably Choking Victim. Yeah, I'm in the same camp. And I think a big part of that is that for me, when Leftover Crack really was taking off was kind of when ska punk had fallen out of favor. And so they were pushed even further onto the periphery. Yeah, and Choking Victim too, they sort of like came and went so fast. They just kind of played a few shows, put out that record, broke up, and they were gone. Right, and so all you had to judge them by was just the songs on that recording which, you know, I feel like people feel all sorts of different ways about Leftover Crack now and Choking Victim now. But I feel like this book, from from what I've read of it, I'm about 200 pages in, I feel like it gives a pretty even-handed, sometimes frightening view of the band. It's not a fluff piece, and it's not like, you know, it doesn't attack the band. It just sort of portrays them in an honest way, as they all say. And oftentimes the members contradict each other. So you're getting all these different stories, but... I kind of feel like that's a that's what a good oral history should do. Definitely. I like that it shows all those different perspectives. All right. So I just want to start. We want to talk about Scott Sturgeon right away. I interviewed him in like 2018 or something. And so I know that he's, there's lots of Scott stories and stuff, but like, was it last year or the year before? I can't remember. He had posted on on Facebook uh, on the leftover craft thing about, you know, his, his exes and, and, 
people that like definitely got people upset him in a way that was beyond what I think even the past, you know, where in, it was viewed as him threatening violence on his exes. I'm not sure exactly what your guys's take on all that is, but just in general, I think like it's a very polarizing thing to um, talk about him and, and therefore, you know, leftover cracks. So I just want to kind of discuss that right up front. And what your guys' take are since you guys, you know, Brad, you're in his band and um, you're in a band together. And John, and you know, you helped co-write this book. It's a very sensitive subject and we're aware it's a very sensitive subject and we address it in the book. We talk to the people involved in those scenarios, the people that want to talk about it, and we put their commentary in the book. And I can't really speak on behalf of them. You know, th those are complex things. And uh, so the people have their say and, and Sturgeon has his say and uh, – we can't really speak on behalf of those people because that's unfair to do. I mean, do you want to ask a more direct question in regards to it? Because, you know, I, like what was he thinking when he wrote that? I do not know. You know, we live in, we live in, you know, I have my opinions about it. Right. But we live on opposite sides of the U S and I see him in person very little, you know, uh, really only when we play. Well, I, I mean, li listen, Sturgeon is a very polarizing person. Um, he's very intelligent, and sometimes he says a lot of crazy and stupid stuff. Sturgeon has been quite open that he has mental health issues and other issues as well. And when people have mental health issues and other issues, they say weird, crazy stuff. You know what I mean? Um, is it a nice thing to say or a good thing to say? No, you know. Um, but, you know, when you have people that live on the edge in their art, like Sturgeon does, they're going to say weird stuff sometimes. Lou Reed said weird stuff, you know. David Bowie said weird stuff. And does it make it right or okay? No. But, I mean, um, like I said, everyone has their say in the, in the book, and it's not for us to say another person's experience is right or wrong, you know, especially in this book, which I'd argue is a very objective view of leftover crack. It talks about the good and the bad side. So, so I mean, what's the question exactly? I guess I'll be a little more direct. I felt so i interviewed him before that happened and then by the time the book was finalized and ready to go in it had happened and i had seriously considered like you know maybe taking him out of the book because of it well how, how do you address it in the book we talk to people that are involved in the circumstance that you're referring to the people that wanted to talk to us and we print what they say and i can't really comment on what they say from my perspective you know the stock answer is you know it's in the book you know what i mean and, and we address uh, certain you know topics like that where we're talking to um people that there has been that he's had conflicts with you know and and we talk to both parties right you know well here's him talking about it here's <clears throat> here here they are talking about it here are a, a number of people in the given situation weighing in on it you know and uh and, and let the reader make up their own mind it's for me personally you know um uh, you know in my personal life you know, um, you know, uh, I, I'm not really a guitar player. I'm a guy who works with, you know, um, uh, people that are in trouble, you know? And so, you know what I mean? And, and, you know, having, you know, had, you know, been through the ringer with, you know, substance abuse and mental issues myself, you know, um, uh, you know, when I was younger. And so the world I come from, you know, is, is filled with people that, that, um, are suffering greatly, you know, and, and, you know, it's a world of people wanting to fucking kill themselves, um, uh, you know, that are, that are trapped in, in these, um, 
mental situations that they can't get out of, you know, and, and they're looking for help. You know, some of them aren't looking for help. I never talked to him directly about that, but I've seen that kind of stuff. It, it's commonplace, you know, w- when you're working with people that, that need help, you know, it just is. So to me, you know, it, 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 I'm not condoning it, but it wasn't shocking. It's, it's like, you know, um, given certain situations, uh, it's, it, it just isn't shocking, you know? My experience with them, and, and it's in your book, is that um, he he stole food from a grocery store while we were interviewing him, which is kind of, I feel like, falls into the category of funny. While you're interviewing, he was, he was shoplifting? Yeah. Um, that's like, you know, a person that's, you know, like you said, lives on the edge and all that stuff. It's something that's funny. It's not really offensive to me personally. Is there lines with him and his behavior in terms of like your participation of him with him in a band or people's support of the band? I think that's some of the question. Well, I mean, what's the, what's the question? What are the lines of acceptable behavior? Yeah. I mean, how, yeah. And how do you, how do you, how do you navigate that? I mean, what are, what are the lines of acceptable behavior to participate in a band with somebody who would do that? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. I'm just kind of exploring that idea. Sure. Sure. Well, my personal take is, um, I mean, I've known Sturgeon. I won't call him Scott. I've known Sturgeon a long. I've known, I've known Sturgeon a long time. I've known him since he was a little kid. You know, and uh, um, you know, uh, I, I mean, I just don't think he's, you know, capable of uh, of of being that kind of guy. You know, he's not a violent dude. He's just not. He's a fucking powder puff. You know. And so, you know, of course, what people post on social media and how they want to portray themselves are, are more often than not two different things, you know. And and so, you know, I don't know what his take on on writing that that particular post you're talking about was. You know, there was a whole period of just, you know, these like, you know, just one after another of like, what's going on here? You know, post after post. Um you know, which are consistent to me, you know, with somebody who's like suffering, you know. Um, uh, so is he capable of that kind of stuff? <laughs> no, I don't think so. You know, I mean, I'm not not where I come from. You know, I know some truly dangerous people and, and you know, um, growing up in the places that I grew up. And he's not that kind of guy. He's just fucking not, you know. I mean, he's got problems, but he's not that guy. So, uh, you know, what is, why would I want to continue to participate? Um, well, I'm, you know, punk bowling is going to be my last show with the, with the band. Um, oh, really? Yeah. So I'm leaving uh, to pursue other things, you know, it's a combination of reasons I'm leaving, but mostly because I want to do other things, you know, and, uh, um, uh, you know, I'm a guy that likes to live like, you know, quiet life. You know what I mean? How many people have been in and out of leftover crack? Uh, I would say probably as many people as were in. Uh, hmm. uh, if you go down the list of people that were in Mothers of Invention, no, I don't know. I mean, fucking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, it, it, it's. Uh, 
a lot of people. Yeah. You know, there are people that have been in the band that I don't remember their names. You know, they played a couple of shows. They were cool to hang out with. I don't remember the names. You know, they were in and out so fast, you know, and um, so I couldn't give you a number. You know, it's it's been primarily the, the, the same people. Um, do I like that kind of situation? Multi, lots of band members? No, I don't like that kind of situation, personally. To me, I consider a band to be a very sacred thing in a, in a unit, you know, and the integrity should be preserved of, of you know, um, you know, of the of the the people that are um you know making the records you know it's it's not just it doesn't matter if one person is writing all the music you know there's more to a band than one person writing all the music there are a lot of elements in it everybody brings their own unique uh abilities and takes on things and and that's part of uh, you know the, the beautiful thing about collaborating with with other people on artwork you know or music or whatever. I mean, are these things you can do by yourself? Sure. You know, painters paint by themselves. You know, my wife is a painter. She doesn't work with anybody. She loves that. You know, I like collaborating with other people because oftentimes, you know, you'll come up with things that, that are way better than you could come up with by yourself, you know, uh, just throwing the ideas around uh, or at least different, you know, and, and, uh, and different is good. So, you know, I don't like that kind of stuff. No. And my personal bands that, that I've been in, you know, within reason, you know, if one person leaves or, you know, I, I was in a band for a while that had like a spinal tap drummer kind of situation going, <laughs> you know, and, and our drummers are just exploding. And, uh, you know, F minus was like that. And, and, uh, and that was kind of the thing for a while. Well, okay. You know, whoever can play drums, you know, um, but once we locked in, you know, the guy who did all of our Hellcat records with us, that was it, you know. And then, uh, uh, you know, once that that sort of core um, lineup started to break up, I just had no desire to continue doing it, you know. Even though I had more ideas and more things that that I felt we could have pursued, it just, you know, it was just it starts to dilute. Right. In in reading a lot of the leftover crack book, it feels like a lot of the um membership of the band is very uh fluid and tenuous where you know people are getting kicked out or, or quitting uh kind of left and right um which is what <laughs> made me bring up the you know how many people have been in and out i was trying to get a gauge of like how many people stick around versus how many people kind of come and go um just getting kind of a, a better picture of that yeah, how many how many people have been in a, in the band in a in a significant capacity, like for an extended period of time? I have no idea. You know, I mean, the, re <laughs> the reasons that the reasons that people didn't stick around were re were because you know they had jobs or whatever, and they you know they couldn't tour year round. You know, and uh, um, it, it wasn't because you know some of them thought, ah, oh, you guys are fucking a bunch of assholes. You know, and and we never held that against anybody. You're right. We're a bunch of fucking assholes, you know. And and uh, but no, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in. And that Brad is not in that. Brad is actually one of the several nice people in the band, as in, as is Aura. I will say one of the conflicts in the band is between Sturgeon and Ezra, and and the reason for that conflict is because they're both extremely talented. 
They're both extremely, extremely smart. Well, a lot of people don't even know. Like Ezra can fly airplanes. Like he likes to he's fly like, airplanes. He can fly. He, he's a yoga airplane. master. Yeah. He knows how to build ha- like he built a house. You, you know, so Ezra. I mean, and Sturgeon. I, I, we talk about this in the book. Is Sturgeon got into Bronx science without even trying? If the listeners don't know, Bronx science is like the Harvard of high schools. Like, it, I mean, it's, it's it's free, it's public, but you have to, like, pass an extremely hard test to get into. You know, and Sturgeon just went st- – Sturgeon partied the night before, went and got into Bronx, and then decided not to go because it was too far of a bus ride, you, you know. And so one of the conflicts you have is you've got these two artistic powerhouses, and Brad is often caught in the middle, as is Aura. And, frankly, Aura leaves the band, uh, Aura the drummer, because he's kind of a normal guy. He's got a family, and he just can't live in this chaos, you, you know. You know, I mean, I, I joined the band as just a, a, like a utility guy, right? A guitar player, you know. I, I had no stake in the, in the songwriting. Um, you know, I had my own band. You know, I had my own things that I did. And, and I, I'd known Sturgeon through, you know, it talks about it in the book, right? I, I mean, I, I knew him through working at Hellcat and, and, you know, sort of, you know, digging those guys, choking victim up, you know, and, and – uh, um, and it was like, hey, you, you, you want to play guitar? I have all these songs, and, and, and I need somebody to play guitar. And, and uh, it's like, sure, you know, you know, these songs are, are great. This sounds fun, you know. Totally different than anything that I would write, you know. And uh, um, so, in a sense, um, you know, I, <laughs> I never felt like it was my band, you know, in, in that sense. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know. Uh, and not to, I mean, everybody that's, that's played with us has been great in their own right. Even the people that were in there for two days that whose names I can't remember. I'm not trying to shit on anybody, you know? And, and that's the only reason I can't remember their names is because, you know, <laughs> I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, you know? And, 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 you know, it, it's like, you know, everybody has been, you know, um, either a great player or if they weren't a good player, they were an awesome person. You know, and and uh, and that's very important too. I'm not the greatest player, you know. <clears throat> I've you know I have like a a thing that I do, and that's what I and that's what I do, you know. Um, so uh, you know, I think the the you know the one thing that that everybody who's been in the band had in common uh, was we you know we all had the same sort of uh, um, goals, uh, you know. I don't really want to use the word politically, but, you know, we were all for pushing for, you know, a better world of, of, uh, uh you know, equal rights and, and, uh, um, you know, love really, you know, and, and acceptance of, of, uh, um, you know, people, uh, no matter what their, um, you know, sexual orientation, <clears throat> you know, racial background, uh, you know, um, gender, any of that sort of stuff. And, and those are the things that, that the band was pushing for. And that's what I was attracted to in the beginning. You know, I mean, we're not the first band to do that. We're another in a long line of bands all pushing for that kind of world, you know, that's been going since, you know, the 50s and 60s, right? But, <clears throat> you know, I think that that, that needs to still continue to be, um, uh, you know, I think that the, the thing Left Over Crack did was, you know, we brought it out of the, the, you know, the DIY basement into more of a mainstream sort of situation. Um, if I can even use that term in regards to, to the band, but, you know, we were playing like, uh, 
you know, we would play anything. We'd play anything from somebody's, literally somebody's fucking living room, you know, to, um, uh, you know, festivals to whatever, you know, and, and always pushing that, that uh, agenda, I guess, you know, that was our agenda. One of the themes I felt was t- covered in the book was this idea that leftover crack was viewed at, by some people or a lot of people outside of the sphere as being um, shock value, just just being just being about shock value and having and that sort of discussion about whether you guys were serious about your message or if you had a message or if you were just trying to shock people. What What is your take on that? Uh, when I met Sturgeon, he was 20 years old and he was the most PC person I had ever met ever, you know, and straight out of, you know, um, uh, um, straight out of ABC, no Rio, you know, and just like unflinchingly serious about the topics that he was writing about, you know, but also sprinkled in with songs about mental illness, you know, and, and wanting to off yourself you know, and not being able to come to, to, to grips with this world that we're thrown into and, and having it drive you fucking insane, you know, but he used, I think a lot of imagery just for the fun of it. You know what I mean? Um, a, a, a lot of, uh, you know, dark imagery and, and, uh, uh, you know, I think people miss the, the humor in it as well, you know, and, and I don't know if, if, um, you know, I don't know. None of that stuff was shocking to me. Oh, a pentagram. You know, none of that stuff was shocking to me ever, you know, but, but that's me. And, and, you know, if you're referring to shocking, like, you know, album art or flyer art, or do you mean it as, as far as, um, you know, some of the antics at, at gigs? I would say that like some people, you know, the album art, the, the satanic imagery, I think the uh, extremity of some of the lyrics, maybe people were like, are they being serious? Do they really mean kill cops? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. not, not you know, the, the the debate about if it was a shock value band or a political band, I think. Well, I, I definitely I, I definitely got that from the book, that that was something uh, like a dynamic happening. I mean, you would have to ask Sturgeon about the lyrics, really, to, to you know, to me, I never took kill cops literally but that's me, you know, and because we don't want to fucking kill people. You know, the thing was, you know, going to that extreme to drive home a point, you know, against police brutality. Right. And, and, uh, and that's what it was, you know, he told me that it was, he went there because ice T made the cop killer song and then back down, got so much pressure and back down that he thought it was fucked up that, he would have to back down from that message. So he felt inclined to push that message. Well, I mean, if if you look at from a fan's perspective, that's why Leftover Crack is a super interesting band is when they have songs like Kill Cops, you know, Shoot the Kids at School. Are they being serious or is it art? And that it is art. And, and the point is, the point isn't, this is exactly what I think and this is what everyone else should think. The point is, Here's a concept, and you should contemplate the concept. The fact is police do do create injustice. The fact is school violence, which is bad and is not good, is often perpetrated by kids that have terrible home life or have picked on at school and both. So by, I mean, you can write a doctoral thesis on why there's violence at school or why police abuse their power, you know, but is that going to catch 
young people's attention like a song like, you know, Kill Cops would? You know, the answer is no. And so it plants that vague idea that doesn't even really have a specific concrete meaning or definition. And it gets the young people to think critically and think, well, what does this mean? What do I think? And that's, I mean, that's art. I mean, you know, that's all, that's all the best art there is, yes. you know? I mean, if we look at you know, Clash, I'm so bored with the USA. Is Joe Strummer really saying he hates the USA? No, he's, he's putting out this abstract concept, which you can bend at your will, you know? Yeah. I think that, you know, um, you know, what would Ian McKay say? You know, think, use your head, you know? And, and, and is it really, you know, do we really think school shootings are fucking awesome, you know, um, and, and, you know, capping people is, maybe he did if he was talking about the, the, the iced tea thing, you know, I don't know. I, I had never, you know, um, uh, been privy to any sort of attitudes of like, uh, you know, um, anybody getting killed was awesome, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think like, um, I'm not sure if this is exactly what his point was, but it seems to me like the idea of saying kill cops is like the most ultimate taboo you can say that, that, you know, and that's kind of the point is that why, why is killing a cop even more taboo than saying kill your next door neighbor? Like why? It is. I mean, it's, it's extreme politics and it's, and, and, you know, I mean, you know, the Panthers were doing that, you know, doing that stuff in the sixties and, and, you know, uh, um, you know, they used, you know, harsh rhetoric, man, to, to, you know, get the point across, um, and actions, you know, but, um, uh, you know, again, I mean, I, you know, I gotta be careful commenting about the lyrics because, you know, I didn't write the lyrics. So it's, it's, you know, speculation really on my part. I want to talk a little bit about both of you guys. You guys wrote this book together. So I want to know a little bit about what your guys' history and relationship is and, and how you how you guys wrote a book together and what sort of your roles were with it. I have no idea where I met John. I, I, who is who is this guy? I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a straight edge guy from Treme, you know. I, I knew Brad Logan from F. I mean, I didn't know him. I knew F. Minus on Leftover Crack, and I was a big fan, so I interviewed him for Punk News. This is maybe ten years ago or more. The funny thing was, is I'm interviewing him, and I knew that Brad loved Blue Oyster Cult, so I start the interview with like six questions about Blue Oyster Cult, and about like the sixth <laughs> question, Brad says to me, he says. Listen, I, I don't really know that much about Blue Oyster Cult. I mean, I like their logo, <laughs> and I realize that Felix Havoc loves Blue Oyster Cult, not yeah. Brad Logan. And so Brad thought I, thought I was a total psycho, and then we became pals since then. Yeah. <laughs> and then Brad called me up on the phone about four years ago, and he, and he says, "Let's do a book on leftover crack." And I said, "I'm in." And then we 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 did it, and and so our roles. Were, were somewhat flexible, but basically both Brad and I did interviews with people. Brad interviewed people that might be more guarded because they were more relaxed with him. And Brad is an amazing interviewer. I mean, so much of interviewing is just charisma. Brad will say, hey, man, it looks like it's raining. And the person will be like, yeah, it's raining. It reminds me how I always hated my mother. You know what I mean? Like, like amazing like things. And so we would both do interviews. We would transcribe. Then I would take the transcriptions and what I call weave them together, you know, take bits that fit together and snap them together. And then Brad and I would go over the whole thing and clean it up and pinch stuff, add stuff and take stuff out. 
Brad, you had thought like, oh, you know, it's time to document this band. I'm curious, what was the thought process there? Right. It, it, you know, so many insane thing, you know, just, you know, contradictions and just, just, you know, I've been watching bands literally all my life, right? I started going to concerts when I was 10 and uh, just so many crazy things were happening in the context of this band. Um, it, you know, not all bad things, right? Good things too. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh man, you know, I, I'd always say in the van while we we're, you know, driving from show to show, somebody should really, you know, document this stuff. It's just too fucking insane, you know? And, and uh, we would all laugh. Ha ha ha. And, and then I thought, well, you know, if nobody's going to do this, I'm going to do it, you know? And, uh, uh, and I contacted John because, uh, I knew it was too much for, for one person to handle, you know, um, just the, the volume of people, uh, that, that were involved, you know, um, but also John was a journalist and, and a writer and, and actually knew what he was doing. And I, you know, and, and I don't, right. And I wanted to work with somebody who had those credentials, you know, that could help hammer this thing into shape. And, and, uh, and John's that kind of guy, you know, his work ethic and, 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 and his writing and, and, uh, um, uh, you know, to me, he's, you know, he's a professional, you know, but, uh, thanks Brad. You know, I mean that, you know, and, and, but you also like, you know, just weirdo music and stuff, you know, and, and, uh, um, I asked a couple of other people before I asked John and, and they were just like, oh yeah, sounds like a great idea. Then, you know, they would just fade away or disappear. And, and, uh, I, I I didn't know that, but thanks for you know letting me be the last girl asked the prom. I didn't well, know so that. You, were not you actually showed up and and we're like, yeah, let's fucking do this. Here we go. You well, know, this and, changed my whole perspective now. I thought I was number one, you know, like number nine. Hmm. Yeah, how does it feel, John, to be yeah. number nine? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I asked a couple of people. You know, I asked this guy in a Seven Eleven, and then I asked another dude down at uh, you know the the, the mechanic, you know, and but um. Uh, well, I mean, I asked a few other people and it occurred to me that I, I need to work with somebody who has their shit together, you know, damage control, damage right. control, <laughs> pedaling backwards, you know, and I mean, John had his shit together, you know, that's it. The book's not coming out. I'm called, I'm canceling it right I now. Quit. Take out all my parts, take out all my interviews. Um, so, you know, I mean, you know, granted we, you know, this, we couldn't put everything in this book that, that. You know, this is only a small slice, right? It's just a, you know, um, you can't really encompass a, you know, 15-year period and 300 pages, right? So we tried to put in, you know, stuff that we thought was, um, uh, you know, that would be a good read, man, and interesting, you know, and... and uh, um, it's it's definitely compelling. Um, did you read the whole thing? I think you know it, it. It starts off one way, and then it kind of kind of goes into another thing, and it ends you know another way, right? It's like it's a slow burn. I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing yet. I've read about a third of it. I started it today, and I'm halfway through. So fuck you, Aaron. <laughs> well, I have you know. Good job, Adam. I appreciate that. Adam's Adam's yeah, just, a, just Adam's a just a dad though. Come on. What do you mean just a dad? Being a dad is a very important job. Dads and moms are arguably the most dads and moms are arguably the most Adam, how dare you let him like like talk bad about like like you your your contribution to this world? It's okay. We'll edit that part out. Because you know, I've given it to some people to read and they were like, you know, they started reading it and they're like, ah, this is fucking bullshit. And I'm like, no, no. You gotta keep reading. 
you know, and, and they're like, all right. I felt it was immediately compelling. The storytelling, it just moves along really fast. And it's just um, like, it definitely feels like chapter chapter, like, how is this real? Like, how does this band last for 15 years? That's the question. Yeah, I mean, really, you, you know, just the things, the the circumstances and the decisions it just feels like, yeah. That was something I wanted to pick your guys' brains on because, you know, the the beginning of the book starts with uh, choking victim and, and then leftover crack kind of all kind of coalescing out of just like, <laughs> I mean, both, both bands are just basically train wrecks from, from the, the way that you guys lay it out. <laughs> and I wanted to see what, what in your opinion caused these bands to persevere and not just have the labels just like, drop them immediately or have people to slam doors in their faces. Like how, how did this happen? I was particularly, yeah, I could particularly felt like absolutely could not understand why Hellcat still put out that choking victim record. Here's why it's because the choking victim record is one of the greatest modern punk records ever. The leftover crack, all three leftover crack records are amazing. No one well, not no one, very, it's a very rarefied band that has these extremely serious concepts with such a wry sense of humor and grand ideas, you know. And in that, I mean, honestly, like if this band wasn't as you know self destructive as they are, you probably wouldn't be have such artistic great, greatness. That, that's kind of the, the duality which we've seen in other acts, we've seen that in the replacements, we've seen that in the Stooges. And not that I'm saying leftover crack is as good as the replacement, as good as the Stooges, but I'm saying that same kind of internal mania which causes greatness also causes great conflict. You know, look, Sturgeon, amazing artist, extremely far out guy. Ezra, amazing artist, extremely far out guy. Brad Logan, amazing artist, not as far out. And that's why he kind of anchors them down and brings up the straight up hardcore angle. You've got ska, which we should talk about more on this podcast. You've got metal, you've got hardcore, you've got punk. You've got all of these things being mixed together in a very convincing, genuine, bona fide way. They're not trying to be cute. They're being funny sometimes, but they're finding the connections between all these different things and being serious and also being funny at the same time. And that's why every time there's, you know, every time it, it breaks down, it reassembles. You know, after the breakdown of the second album, no one thought there was going to be a third leftover crack record. But the band after, I think it was 11 years or something, came out with constructs of the state an amazing record. The third record should not have been a great record. Most third records after 11 years are terrible records. The third leftover crack record is a great record. And it's because the, the band is full of extremely talented people, which because of their talent is maybe some of the reasons why they are such unusual people. Well, so, I mean, would you say, I mean, I, I know you were trying to spin it in a positive way, but would you say that because, because the music's so good, people we're like, okay, I'll work with these guys. I, if they, if the music, if the music was maybe a little less good, people would be like, get these guys out of here. That's exactly what I'm saying. One hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. Now, Brad, give us the real answer. We heard the PR answer. <laughs> uh, what John said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess I. You know, that's I. I don't really have that. You know, um, uh, that perspective of being outside. You know, uh, um, I think that you know why people would want to work with the band. You know, I mean, I think that. I don't know why people would want to work with the band. I know that the people in the band, <clears throat> you know, none of us had anywhere else to go. We were just, you know, um, uh, in, in that we were, um, 
you know, musicians, artists, songwriters, creators, I use those terms loosely, you know, but that's like, you know, that's, there was no like, okay, well, if this doesn't work out, you know, I'm going to, you know, collect that trust or go get that job or, you know, put this degree to work. You know, everybody came from, um, you know, out of the shit really. <laughs> and, and, and so it was like, you know, the, there's nowhere else to go, but to do this. And, and I think that, um, the songs are pretty good. Yeah. It's like, yeah, this is, you know, it, 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 it's, it on paper, it shouldn't work. You know, like when John was saying, you know, metal mixed with ska mixed with hardcore that sounds like fucking dog shit you know and and uh <laughs> right like if you saw if somebody sent you a press release like that you'd be like cool into the shredder you know and and uh and yet it it it, it works you know or, or at least for me it did you know it didn't sound like a ska band it didn't sound like a metal band you know it didn't sound like any of those things it was its own thing which was um uh you know, uh, pretty cool, you know, when you, when you kind of hit your own, you know, your own vein. And, and, um, so, you know, uh, um, speaking from the, you know, the band member side, nobody had anywhere better to go. You know, there was no fucking retirement plan, you know, uh, there still isn't, you know, and, and, uh, um, so, you know, the the band was going to make records regardless if anybody wanted to put it out or not. I think the thing that's weird, the thing about the choking victim record, I will say to, to, sorry to cut you off is, is that, um, you know, when the band exploded, uh, I remember, you know, going back to Tim and going, well, this band just fucking melted down. And he's like, that's cool. I'm going to put this record out anyways, because I really like this record and I really like that band and operation Ivy broke up after their record came out, you know, and, and that record came out anyways. So this record's going to come out anyways. And I don't care if I lose money, you know, I, I don't, I just don't give a shit, you know, I'm putting this record out and, and Tim was in it, you know, um, uh, for, you know, for the music and for the bands, you know, he was very passionate about that. And, you know, that, that was like, you know, just mind blowing to me, like, ah, oh, that's so great that you're going to put this out because it is a really good record, you know? Um, and I think it ended up doing pretty good for, for Hellcat or whatever, but you know, that wasn't even the thinking, well, you know, uh, what about recouping this money or, you know, none of that stuff mattered. And, uh, um, you know, um, so, uh, um, you know, I, I thought that was just, you know, really cool of, of Tim to do that. So choking victim breaks up two days into the recording. Um, and you're, you're kind of there as like, a liaison or something. And how does Tim Armstrong, how does he react to the news that choking victim is no more as they're recording the album? Yeah, I had been, I, you know, I had been assigned the task by Hellcat by Tim, really not by Hellcat by Tim to go, um, uh, dig up this. He, he was like, I'm starting this label. You know, I got a, there's a bunch of bands I want to sign. There are too many bands that I want to sign. And, uh, um, you know, I was working at Hellcat kind of part-time and in between Rancid tours. Um, you know, I was living down the street from, from, uh, from Epitaph and, and, uh, he's all, okay, uh, here's a job for you. You know, go find this band choking victim, uh, in, in, you know, the Lower East Side. Uh, and, you know, here's a phone number on a, on a piece of paper 
and a plane ticket to New York City. I was like, sounds good. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, I, I called the number, which, which you know, um, this was before cell phones. This is before texting. This is before, uh, you know, any sort of real, real functional email. You know, I called the number um, uh, that Tim had given me and, and it was, uh, you know, it was like Sturgeon's mom or something. And, and, uh, uh, you know, I left a message and, and, you know, so <clears throat> Sturgeon called me back a few days later before I left LA and I was like, all right, meet me in front of Coney Island high at three o'clock on this date, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. And so, uh, you know, I get into New York city and, and you know, three o'clock on Wednesday, the 16th or whatever the fuck it was, you know, I'm, I'm walking down, uh, Coney Island High was this club on um, St. Mark's, uh, uh, right there, kind of by um, uh, uh, where uh, Destroy is now. I don't even know if Destroy is still there. But, you know, there's this kid sitting out in front, man, and he, he looked exactly like he sounded on the recording of uh, um, 500 Channels, right? It's like I'd never met the guy. I didn't know what he looked like. But when I saw him, you know, you know, just all in black you know, just dirty as hell, dreads, you know, young, you know, he's like 19 or 20. It's like, this is the guy, you know, it has to be the guy. Basically I went to, you know, I went to the band and went, you know, I work for this label Hellcat. It's, you know, Tim from Rancid does it. And, you know, he wants to do the record with you guys. And, and, um, you know, they were very apprehensive, you know, they, they weren't like, sure, let's do it. They were like, I don't know. You know, this is like, sounds like some corporate bullshit and, and you know we don't know who you people are and and you know um i went there to convince them that that hellcat was run by real people that cared about music you know and and which it was you know and um you know it was tim it was the wicks it was uh you know all the staff there at the time were just it was just music fans you know what i mean it wasn't these weren't like people with you know masters in business and marketing and you know um there may have been a few, you know, one or two of those type of people, but by and large, the staff of Epitaph and Hellcat was just fucking, you know, uh, music fans, you know, record store people. And, and, uh, so, um, they agreed to do it. And, you know, I think they came out to LA and, you know, met the, you know, the, the Epitaph staff and, 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 uh, so the recording was set. Here's the date. We want to, we don't want to do it in a studio. We don't want anybody to produce it. We want to do it ourselves at serenity squad which was where uh squirt lived across the it was you know next block over from from c squad we're going to do it in stir uh, in squirt's house so i go out there with with this guy named mike trujillo who um uh, was on the epitaph staff and and uh you know i forget what he did you know he did some bullshit but he was also like a you know he recorded he had a recording studio in his garage man and, and I don't know if he had ever recorded records or anything before, but he had a bunch of like outboard recording gear, um, you know, just all in one rack. So we went out to New York City together. <clears throat> we went up the day before we, you know, set up the mics and everything in Squirt's house and kind of got it, you know, uh, you know, all the placement of everything and everything ready to go. You know, cool. This is going to be great. And uh, um, I think that, I don't know. I don't remember where I was. You know, I was probably running around New York City. I, I, you know, that's like a second home to me. I, 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 you know, I had a bunch of friends out there, and I was probably running around with people. But you know, I, and I, you know, I just wanted to leave the band alone. What the fuck am I going to do, right? So I left them alone. You know, to make the record, and and uh, 
um, you know, I went in to check in with him, <laughs> you know, the second day of recording after getting some basic tracks and, and, you know, I come walking up the street and, you know, there's Shane and, and Squirt and Ezra all standing in front of C-Squad, you know, like kind of looking at the ground, you know, standing around this like, you know, tree out there. I'm like, Hey, you know, how'd it go yesterday? You know, this is fucking exciting. Cool. We're going to do this. And they're like, um, well, uh, Squirt just punched Sturgeon out. They just got in a big fight. And I was like, <laughs> what? What are you telling me? I'd never even heard of anybody doing that kind of stuff, right? What do you yeah. mean you got in a fight? Well, cool. Let's just get in there and, you know, make that fucking record. And they were like, no, I think, uh, I think Sturgeon, uh, you know, doesn't want to do the record now. He's, he's over in Tompkins Square Park, I think. And uh, I was like, this is, this is just madness. So, I, you know, I walked over to Tom. It was mad madness, and yet it wasn't madness. You know, coming from the L.A. punk scene, um, uh, you know, uh, the, the scene that I came from it, it was like, you know, people being crazy like this was what how people were, you know. Uh, but you didn't do the shit when you were making a fucking record, right, for this, like, you know, big record label. It, it's like, this is, this is insane. And I went into, uh, I found him in Tompkins laying on a bench, you know, and, and uh, you know, he looked like he'd been bludgeoned about the head and shoulders, you know, and, and uh, just bloodied. And, and I'm like, dude, what's up? You know, uh, uh, you know, you look great. Are we going to go in and make this record? You know, and he's all, no, you know, I, I don't want to like see those guys. I don't want to do this record. Sorry. You know, I'm done. I'm not doing it. And uh, <laughs> so I went back and I told those guys, nope, he's not doing it. And so we decided to wait, you know, like, well, let's see, let everybody cool off and, and we'll see, you know, what it's like tomorrow. And, and, uh, you know, Sturgeon was just uh, pretty adamant about it. He was pretty hurt, I think, you know, and, and uh, um, so, you know, I went back to LA and, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I, ca I probably called Tim, you know, I don't remember exactly, but I probably called him and I went, Hey, you know, here's what went down. You know, somebody got punched, records not happening. He's like, what? What are you telling me? I'm like, no, real, you know, for real. So, uh, you know, a, a couple of weeks went by and we, you know, I think they tried to convince the band to, you know, um, continue on as a band. Um, uh, but they weren't, you know, Sturgeon wouldn't do that, but he agreed to finish the record. So um, uh, Squirt, uh, Ezra and Shane did all the, the instrumental tracks at serenity you know which was in in squirt's living room and then sturgeon did all his vocals and guitar at like another studio i think out in out in la somewhere and uh you know and i remember asking tim so you know what do you think about all this stuff he's like well you know um i'm gonna put the record out anyways you know even if they're not even if they're broken up even if they're not going to be a band you know um operation ivy recorded a record we put it out we broke up you know the same day as we put out a record and uh you know if it's good enough for us it's it's good enough for for these guys and i really like this record and so i'm putting it out you know and i don't care if anybody fucking buys it you know i like the record and, and that's that and that's what he did you know and and uh i was blown away i was like you know that's just so awesome of you to do that you know do you recall was there any aside from like you know in, in the middle of it was there 
thoughts that, oh, they're going to get back together? Or was it just like an acceptance of, okay, this band is done, but we really just want to do this record? I always thought they'd get back together, right? Um, You know, personally, that's what I thought. Uh, But it never happened, you know, Um, which is a shame because they had, I had seen them, you know, they only played a handful of shows in their existence, you know, um, prior to doing that record. And I saw a couple of them. Uh, I saw them a few times as a three piece. And, and But that lineup that they had for No Gods, No Managers, um, you know, with Ezra on guitar, Shane scored Ezra and Sturgeon. It was great, man. It was really good. You know, they were kind of on fire as a band. And, uh, and, and it's just too bad it didn't continue. Um, but, you know, it, 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 it's like, you know, maybe that's the way it needed to play out. You know, maybe that's what needed to happen. You know, and, and if they had been, you know, I, I kind of, you know, reference this in the book and, you know, of um, if they had been best buddies and, you know, backslapping drinking buddies, you know, maybe the record wouldn't have turned out as, as, as you know, visceral as it did, you know, and, and to me, it just sounds real, you know, and uh, sounds like anguish. And uh, um, so maybe that's the way it had to play out. You know, and I certainly have nothing but respect for Ben for for breaking up and never reforming. You know, you can't go wrong doing that. You know, yeah, so, it's a it's a rare band that does not. It's a rare band that does that, and I think Tim respected that too because you know Operation Ivy broke up and never reformed. You know, they never went for the money, and and they were just like, you know, nope, that was then, this is now. One of the things that we talked about a little just a little bit ago, um, and uh, it relates to this and to Leftover Crack, is that. The kind of situations and and, and the, the level of drugs and and like the fighting and and this this insanity of the bands that was a lot more common in like rock and roll in the sixties and seventies and stuff particularly seventies, but a band as big as Leftover Crack in the two thousands I just don't feel like that kind of behavior existed like it was just it's like sort of like times changed in a way like no one with money is going to deal with a band that difficult in the modern era is kind of like i feel like was sort of that the attitude like that was i think that's i think the weirdest thing about the the legacy of these two bands yeah is the time period of of which of which they existed it shouldn't have happened none of it should have happened you're right (laughs) especially in that in that period right it's like it was not a safe bet it was not like you know uh, anybody that wanted anything to do with with either of those bands was not, you know, um, uh, placing their bets on selling a bunch of records. I would add that, like in the book, the people in Epitaph talk about this, is they talk about how, you know, Leftover Crack, I mean, I think it's Choking Victim, that sh- actually both Choking Victim and Leftover Crack show up, and they camp in like the Epitaph like garden or where they have at Epitaph Records, and it freaks a lot of people out, and it's like, well, you know, we're used to kind of fun in the sun board shorts kind of guys, you know, um, you know, pop punk, and then here are these crusty crust punk guys that are like, they're for real deal, and I, I mean, I guess it, it was out of time, and at the, the mid-90s, early 2000s, Punk is exploding. Green Day's gigantic. Rant is pretty big. You know, No Effects is pretty big, and so th- those bands are all great bands, but they're not. They're not crust punk. They're not you know self destructive like Leftover Crack is, and I think maybe that's one of the reasons why they did resonate with people so much is that it is the real like one of the things that I was surprised about 
before I started the book, I thought a lot of the stuff about drugs and mental health, I thought it was true, but made a cartoon for the record. But it's it's all pretty much true. So I think that that that's what like like attracted people to the band is that this is the this is the real deal. This is real punk. These are real crust punks or or I I guess maybe not I mean the word crust punk is a very weighted term or heavy term they're real they're, what they're singing about is real they're genuine and it's not some you know act or they're not modified by any pr company you know they're not dressing the way a stylist has them dress this is them and i think that's why they were so effective with people and so sure was that out of time with the punk era sure this is a era when pop punk is i mean punk is getting even more pop punk there's better production things sound smoother and leftover crack comes along and is nasty sounding as you know just nasty sounding and so people are like well this is the real punk rock that i want not some people you know not the kind of filtered mainstream ish type stuff that you might hear on the radio and it's like i would say even the the extent of the drugs like yeah back in the 70s you know all entertainers were did tons of drugs and it was like celebrated, but I feel like people, you know, in the, the late nineties and on, it's like, there was less and less, and I'm not like pro drugs in mind you, but like less, less drugs was put up with in, in the entertainment industry. And, and if you were doing drugs, you had to be like a, um, you had to be able to get your shit together and do your drugs and, and still be productive and not a pain in the ass. I don't know if that was true for like a lot of rock stars. I, I don't want to name in the two thousands. No, in yeah, the two thousands. I, I listen, th- th- there are several very famous gigantic rock bands where the members are always fighting and it's clear why I don't want to name names. Cause I don't want to be on the other end of a defamation suit, <laughs> but that, that being said is, it, it, and I, this is important all the members of the band that had experience with drugs felt uh, what I would say they were very adamant about this. And, and, and we really tried to, the book does not say drugs are cool. And if, if you ask me, the book is kind of the biggest argument that drugs aren't cool. You know, you probably don't want to do them, you know, but I, I will say you have to commend all the members of the band and they all really wanted to stress the point. We don't want to make drugs look cool, you know? Um, and I think, I think, I mean, that was a danger because drugs is a part of the band, you know, and the lyrics, and so we, as the band members insisted, we did really try to make sure that drugs, and it, we're not trying to teach a moral lesson necessarily, but we didn't want the message to be drugs are cool when you have fun on drugs. So we really didn't want that to be the message of the book. And I, and I don't think it is. No, I, I didn't catch the uh, fun vibe. In yeah, the yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. You know, uh, I have to agree with John on that. I mean, it's, you know, when you were talking about, you know, people, um, you know, getting the impression of, you know, about the shock value and stuff. It's like, uh, you know, um, maybe some of the artwork was goofy and the skits are goofy and, you know, some of the shit was really goofy. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, there was no, I mean, <laughs> you know, what you saw, what, you know, was what you got. And, uh, uh, you know, the convictions were there. You know, and and the uh, uh, you know the band was very serious about its political leanings, you know, and trying to affect a change, you know, and and we would do, uh, you know, uh, you know every, you know, it was like we would do the opposite of anything that a band would do to to um, further their career or make themselves bigger, you know, or make more money or do better. We, it, you know. It's like we're attracted to doing the polar opposite, you know, and, and uh, um, 
you know, uh, much to my dismay, you know, uh, a lot of times, you know, but, um, you know, we would, you know, piss off uh, shows that would pay a lot of money in favor of doing, uh, you know, benefit shows, you know, and, and um, um, uh, you know, any way that we could be a, a part of, um, uh, um, you know, of really trying to, uh, um, uh, you know, be positive in the midst of all this negativity, you know, and I think that, again, I didn't write the lyrics and, and, you know, um, I don't do drugs. Um, I did them at one time. I did them for a long time. Uh, it, it, it ended, you know, for me, it was very catastrophic, you know, and, and there was no music, there was no bands, you know, there was no, <clears throat> uh, it, you know, it, it, uh, it was a pretty bleak period, you know? So by the time that, um, you know, I resurfaced out of my coma in the early nineties, you know, um, uh, you know, the fact that, that, um, you know, punk had become mainstream was, uh, totally new to me. Um, you know, so, um, uh, uh, what was I getting at? Oh yeah. So, you know, I think that these guys were writing songs, not saying do drugs, everybody, but here's my experience of, of how this drug is saving me from killing myself, you know? And, and I know that there was a period for myself when I was very young, uh, that maybe that, um, you know, they actually helped me get through a lot of tough times. You know, I had an escape hatch and, uh, and it was drugs and alcohol and it got me through some rough periods, but you know, th that stuff eventually turns on you because that it, it has been doing that to humans since the dawn of man. You know what I mean? The, the drugs will always win, you know, and, uh, um, you know, there's never a happy ending. So, uh, you got to get out of it, you know, and, and, you know, it, it, I, I always encourage those guys to not take the drugs, <laughs> you know, <laughs> do not do the drugs, man. I've fucking been there and, and it's a one way street, you know, but you, you can't make anybody do anything. You can't, you know, addiction is a very, um, very complex thing. I, I know people, I know people who have pulled out of it, who, who put their entire being into overcoming it. And it took a long time. And I know people who have never overcome it that just go in and out and in and out and in and out. They never overcome it. So I do too. It takes everything. It, it, ha it takes, it has to take a hundred percent of your energy. There can be nothing else. You know that, I mean, that's my experience is that it has to be the only thing at least, you know, in the beginning. Right. Yeah. My, I have a friend who, um, was doing drugs and I think he moved on to crack at one point until he hit like rock bottom. And his only option was his parents would said, yes, we'll take care of you, but you have to go into rehab. This, this one year rehab program, that's church thing too. And he's like, all right, you know, I'll do it. And he was telling me that, you know, it by the third or fourth month, he's finally at a place where he's like able to have thoughts about how he's, you know, he's the one that's making these decisions that it's, he's not a victim. Like it takes that, like that long of being off the drug to even start to have process the emotions behind the drugs, the responsibilities you have that you make these decisions, that you take the drugs, that you're not a victim. You know what I mean? 
like just getting to those emotions, like took him like three or four months of being off the drug, just processing, you know, going cold Turkey, being in this program, being forced to constantly think about himself, think about his emotional state, you know, the reasons that lead to the drugs. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's an individual, it's a personal choice, right? And, and, you know, lots of people have circumstances, you know, come from, you know, horrible backgrounds and horrible circumstances, and they're truly victims of, of circumstances, you know, but it's, it's, it's almost like a separate issue, you know, and drugs become, become the solution, you know, to cut, to cope with that. But in the end, the drugs, the drugs become, um, you know, uh, also the executioner. So, you know, you have to decide, you know, uh, 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 okay, do I want to, do I want to work on coping with these, uh, you know, horrible things that happen to me, um, in a way that isn't so destructive? Do I want to live? And if, and if I do, are there, are there other ways to do it other than this? Because it's not working anymore. I mean, that, <clears throat> that was at least my experience and, and, and some of, some of my friends, you know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I can understand that and have sympathy for that. And then if you're not an addict, I'm, I'm not an addict. Um, it's hard to get into the mind frame of the addict because it's not, it's not the same kind of mind. I think that's some of it too. It's a different kind of mind. So they say, so they say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the first leftover crack album was supposed to be called shoot the kids at school. Let's talk a little about the story Then I want to get your take on this. Sure. Uh, Hellcat or, or Epitaph, whatever, said no to the title, which was an unusual thing in that they didn't typically censor artists. Tell me a little bit about that. Like, how did it go down? Well, you know, I, I wasn't really there for all of that. Um, I mean, I was kind of dividing my, my time between, uh, you know, doing, uh, you know, being on the road with, you know, Rancid or other bands and, and then, uh, you know, I had my own band, uh, you know, as well. And, and so, you know, I was kind of getting, uh, you know, keeping abreast of it peripherally. And, uh, you know, to me, I was like, shoot the kids at school. That title's terrible. Yeah. You know, so when, <laughs> when I heard they didn't want to do it, I was like, oh, well, okay. You know, uh, and, and I think, um, I don't, I don't know if Sturgeon told me or if I just, you know, a, a CD was just. I was back at, at Hellcat one day and, you know, I saw the CD there and it's like, Mediocre Generica, this is a fucking great name. Ah, this is so good. Brilliant. You know, and, and I didn't even know, uh, you know, the backstory to it, uh, uh, you know, um, you know, that Christina White is, is kind of, uh, you know, talking about it um, in the book. And, and uh, I knew that, that Sturgeon was very upset. The band was very upset. I wasn't, I, I had left Leftover Crack at that point. You know, uh, I did the first, uh, you know, handful of shows in L.A. with them. And then I moved to New York City for a while and I played with them out there for a bit. And then, uh, um, you know, F minus already had a record out, but you know, we weren't we weren't really a band. <laughs> we were just a theory. We weren't really a band. And, and uh, you know, I had been talking to the other members and it was like, well, you know, let's like, uh, you know, this offer for this tour came up. You guys want to do it? And. You know, so I moved back to California and, and, you know, left leftover crack for a period. I moved back to California and started, you know, getting busy with, with F minus. And we ended up making, you know, another record. And, you know, I was kind of lost in that world for a while. You know, we toured constantly. Um, you know, so uh, I heard about 
you know, I was there for a little bit of Mioca Generica. I came in and did some guitar and some, you know, backup vocals and stuff. But, um, you know, the whole, that, that sort of that whole period, uh, um, uh, you know, surrounding the, the, uh, the name change and, and, you know, Epitaph not wanting to do that. Uh, I wasn't really there for. Yeah. It was funny. Like in the book, you know, it has all these different people talking about how like upset they were that they, they felt like Epitaph betrayed them almost. And then your, your, your quotes are like, Oh yeah, whatever. Who cares? Like, it's almost like, <laughs> what's the big deal? Like, yeah. like, let's just move, move on. on. Yeah. Come on. You know, <laughs> It's like, that's the price, you know, I mean, that's the price of doing business. That's the price of collaborating. Right. And, and it's the same in a band situation. It's like, you know, if you want to be in a band situation, you want to work with other people and you want it to be, you know, the sum of its parts, you know, and, and, you know, this sort of greater thing, well, then you have to make concessions, you know, and, and, uh, uh, you don't have to, but that's the price of collaborating with people is, is, you know, considering, you know what they may be willing or not willing to do. And, and I suppose I was in a unique position and it's easy for me to say because I worked there too. You know what I mean? Um, and those guys didn't see it that way. They were just like, fuck these dicks, fuck Epitaph, you know, fuck Hellcat. And, and, and I understand that, you know, if, if, if I wasn't sort of a double agent, I guess I may not have seen it that way, but, you know, working from, you know, both ways, you know, or, or being on both sides of it, I knew that the people at, at Hellcat and Epitaph, they didn't want to do that. You know, they didn't want to fucking do that. You know, they wanted to be known as the punk label that, that help, you know, supports its artists and has fucking cool bands, you know, um, uh, you know, putting out all of this, like, you know, compelling shit. And, and, and it was a hard decision for him, you know, and, and Tim wasn't stoked about it. You know, Chris Lassell, Wicks, none of those guys were like, Oh, this is, Oh no, this just can't happen. You know, it wasn't like a, you know, that sort of, at least that was my take. I was friends with all those people too, you know, that the whole thing was like, you know, um, it was a weird period, man. <laughs> it was a weird period to be putting out a record called that. And, and, you know, um, I, the stuff that Christina talks about, I didn't even know about, you know, and, and, uh, you know, that they had a board meeting and I didn't know they were getting shit for bad religion and Pennywise and stuff. And it's like, Oh fuck. Um, to me, it was just like, Oh, that title sucks. Meteor generic is way better next <laughs> yeah when i when i heard that story i it was funny to me because when um in 2000 when link 80 had wanted to put out an album we'd wanted to call it hella yeah uh you know because of the bay area slang and mike park wouldn't have it and it it came out that alkaline trio was putting out the album that ended up being maybe i'll catch fire at the same time they, they share a, a release date and they wanted to call that album shitty <laughs> And so they had just told Mike they wanted to call their album shitty. And then we told him we wanted to call our album hella. Oh my God. And so he would have these two albums come out that would have been hella shitty. shitty. Yeah. So what did Mike say to you? He just said, no, I'm not fucking. He said, no, change it. Call it something else. Which wasn't a big deal to us. We were like, oh, damn, that sucks. But then we just came up with a different title. Did you feel like you were being censored in any way or or you were compromising your artistic integrity? No, but I, I really do think it would have been funny if maybe I'll catch fire was called shitty. I think it I think that's a way better title, actually. But you know, I, I ran you know, I ran a label I ran a label too out of my you know, out of my house for a few years and it you know, I you know, I came across that too. Like, you know, bands wanted to do, you know, some things and, and uh you know, and, and you know, I went with, you know, sure, let them do it. You know, fine, you know, and, and uh 
um, and, and that was the path, that was the path I took, you know, I personally, you know, wasn't into it, but it's like, you know, it'll make them happy fucking go for it. But I, you know, uh, I've been told, um, you know, I don't know. I haven't been told no in that sort of context, but I've been told many times, no, <laughs> you know, as far as <laughs> in life, you know, and you just, just fucking get on with it. I, I'm not going to say if I like one title more than the other. I, I think there's good arguments all around, and I think the book makes those arguments. But I, I will add, you know, from the perspective of the artist, Shoot the Kids at School, It's the, the title, Shoot the Kids at School, assumes that you're intelligent enough to realize they don't actually mean go shoot the kids at school, especially when you read the lyrics, when those aren't the lyrics. You, you should go shoot this kids at school. Those aren't the lyrics, you know. And so the album assumes the listener – and it compliments the listener that you're intelligent to understand this concept and, and and do something with it rather than maybe a lot of other punk records or other records that are coming out at the same time that are, you should do X, you should do Y, you know, talk to people at the most basic of all level. And so when you have this concept that is kind of interesting or edgy, the artist can hold that very dear, you know, and maybe good art should make people uncomfortable. You know, Andy Warhol's art made people uncomfortable. Salvador Dali's art made people very uncomfortable, you know. And so when an artist has this concept that no one else has expressed and is, is has multiple levels and and trust the listener, the fans to say, you're intelligent enough. You understand what I'm saying. I'm expressing something that no one else out here has expressed because they don't have the courage to express it. And I'm going to express it. And then someone comes along and says, nope, too edgy. We want something safer. You can understand how that can affect the artist quite deeply. And so uh, people go on both sides of this battle, which I think is interesting, but I wouldn't say one side is definitely the right side and one side is definitely the wrong side, if you will. I agree with that. And and I know, I mean, you know, in, in, in the band's defense, I know that, that, um, you know, they, they believe, you know, Sturgeon believed very strongly in that title and he had reasons for it. You know, it was a, it, it was a line from the song, you know, uh, rock the 40 ounce. And, and, you know, it was, you know, a, a social commentary, you know, about being bullied, you know, and, uh, it, to me, at least that was my take. And, um, you know, he didn't really mean go shoot kids at school you know, and, and shoot teachers. And, and, uh, um, uh, and I think if, if that, you know, he, he had presented that title to him at another time, maybe, you know, a year before it, it probably would have gotten, you know, they probably would have ran with it. You know what I mean? I think the timing was just, you know, looking at it now and, and, you know, having talked to, um, you know, Charlie and Christina and, and, you know, uh, you know, other people about it. It's like, Oh yeah, they might have they might have gone with that, you know, uh, if it had happened just you know, a little bit earlier. Um, so yeah, I agree. I mean, with that too, art should push people to think, you know, and uh, I, I don't think he was trying to be uh, cute. You know, it's not. It's not. Cute. I don't think he was you, trying to be cute. I don't think he was trying to be shocking, like oh, this will sell records. I don't think any of those things at all. He he took it very he took it very seriously. And that's why he was so. That's why he was crushed. You know, I I will add to leftover cracks credit. There are have been many 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 times where they could have made the easy choice for more money or the harder artistic choice for less money, and they always go for the artistic choice over the money choice. And I'm sorry, Sturgeon, if you're listening and if I'm incorrect about any of this, your reasons behind any of these things, yeah. or, your, or your lyrics or anything. You know, I'm, uh, you know, I again, I'm just speculating. 
you know, so I apologize, man, if I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. That, that's my take on it. Was there any other, to your knowledge or, or while you were there, was there any other thing like this that happened at Epitaph where they had a born meeting and said, we cannot do this or we are artists, this, this title or this song can't be on here? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I'm just curious if this is an t- entirely unique thing or if this was like. You know. I don't think it was an entirely unique thing. I, I don't. Um, you know, they 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 at the time, um, you know, they they were such a big label that that they were really um, uh, they had become sort of guarded, you know, because they were open to just getting, uh, you know, um, attacked or lawsuited or you know, people are like, oh God, they have all this money, you know, and 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 I know they're getting you know, uh, uh, attacked on, on uh, you know, in, in some ways. And so they, they were really careful about copyright infringement, you know, and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, in, you know, any sort of art or sample, like, you know, <laughs> DFL did that, <laughs> did this, uh, the DFL show cassette, and uh, they, they put out like a thousand cassettes in, in and uh, DFL, DFL was this like, hardcore band on on epitaph in the uh i don't know if you know but it was like at ad rock from the beastie boys and and uh um a wall and some you know some other guys from around monty messix baby monty messix you know crazy and, tom yes i mean uh that's right and I, I i thought they were great you know and so the dfl show <laughs> the cassette came out and it had all these samples on it and none of them were fucking cleared. None of them at all, man. It just had like, <laughs> you know, and, and they didn't find out till they had already released like a thousand of these cassettes and put them in stores. And it was like, wait a minute, you didn't fucking clear any of this shit. And they just shut it down immediately and, you know, tried to recall it. But, um, you know, as far as that went, but, uh, so stuff like that would happen, you know what I mean? And, and, uh, I remember when, when, you know, I was doing stuff with my band, so them I just had to make sure that you know all the art was original and and in this kind of stuff. So, um, <laughs> you know, I don't know if that answers your, answers your question. Um, no, uh, that's interesting. That's interesting to hear that story. I didn't I didn't know about that. About the DFL tape show. About yeah, about the um, having all the uh, samples and getting recalled and all that. Yeah. Oh, it's a fucking great tape too. If you can ever find it, it's you know they put on like. They're like, yeah, this Japanese band sent us a tape of them covering one of our songs, and that's on there. You know, they just had all this, like, just fucking insane shit, you know? It was a piss take. <laughs> <laughs> None of it cleared. None of it okayed. I was, I guess, a little surprised to see in the book, when you, when you guys are talking about the, the 9-11 and, and then the next album, how many people in the band were just started going off about the conspiracy, the inside job conspiracy. Right. Um, I, uh, your answer though, I, I feel like you're saying there isn't an inside job, but you were being kind of nice about it. I mean, you know, I don't know if there was or there wasn't, you know, it's like irrelevant really, you know, to, to me, it's like, you know, um, yeah, so what if there was, you know, I, I don't care about that. I, you know, what I watched unfold was horrific, you know, and, and, and to me, it was like, I didn't care why this was happening, you know, and, and so maybe that's a real short sighted, you know, attitude, um, uh, you know, but 
I mean, you know, if it was a conspiracy by our government, it, you know, uh, or, or an inside job, I mean, is that like a surprise to anybody? Like, <laughs> oh, fuck, that's shocking. You know, like, okay, maybe it was, you know, but, but what does that, you know, what does that have to do with, you know, the tragedy itself? And, and uh, um, you know, I've, I've been reading this book, this oral history um, recently called uh, The Only Plane in the Sky which is an oral history about um, 9-11 and it interviews people that were like in the rubble, you know, that, that, you know, were in the, the offices, you know, in the fucking planes. It's like, it's just mind blowing book. It really, it's a hard read, you know what I mean? And uh, um, so, you know, maybe there was a conspiracy, maybe it was an inside job. It, it's like, you know, that's like so commonplace, especially, you know, um, you know, that's, that's politics, man. That's government. You know, it, 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 it's like, yeah. So, you know, what, what does that change about? What are we going to do about it? You know, how are we going to find out? It's like who shot Kennedy, you know? Well, we're never going to know. He got a fucking bullet in the head and he's dead, you know? And, and that's like, you know, and it, and and it, it, it happened on, you know, um, you know, in front of the whole world, you know, to me, that's like, you know, I don't know, I'm not pro or, or con, you know, Robert Kennedy, but, I, you know, yeah, I'm anti-violent, man. You know, I don't, you know, the, <laughs> really, you know, it's like, it, it, it's like, I don't like that kind of stuff. I just don't. It, it's just very, uh, um, you know, it's fucking tragic. So my attitude on it was, you know, I'm not, I'm not even going to go there and I'm not going to jump down. I'm not a conspiracy guy. You know, I'm just not one of those people. I am very not a conspiracy guy either. I, the, the inside job one always surprises me. People who are not super conspiracy ish. I seem to get into that one. And uh, it always surprises me when I, when I hear that. To me, I don't think it, I don't think it was, it, you know, it was, it's fucking warfare, you know? And, and, yeah. So, I mean, that's how it looked to me. Yeah. And it's like ineptitude. I think, you know, there's, that's the thing, you know? Yeah. It's warfare and, and, and war is fucking garbage, you know? In 2001, this album comes out and, you know, the real heyday of, you know, what people want to call third wave ska had died a couple of years previously. And here's this band still, still chugging along, you know, with ska elements mixed in with their music how was that part of the band perceived during that time period? You know, I don't think anybody ever thought of us as a ska band, you know, mm. um, I, I, at least, you know, that's, you know, that's not the impression I got. Um, I don't know if we ever counted as a, as a, you know, a, a real ska band. I know that that Sturgeon was really into, um, you know, going to, you know, to, to ska shows, you know, he was in that scene in New York city, you know, um, with the whole moon ska, uh, you know, and, and, um, you know, all of those bands of which I, I know very little about, I know he was really about that, you know, and he went to all those shows and, and, uh, you know, he, he, uh, um, mingled with all of those people and, and, you know, introduced me to a lot of them. Um, but I don't think it was perceived as, as uh, you know, I don't think that, that ska bands took as seriously as a ska band. You know what I mean? Um, 
I certainly, it, you know, never thought of the band as being a ska band. And for a lot of years, I, I, I couldn't play ska, you know, I just, I, I would not play on those parts. Right. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I would not play. You just, I would just stand, what would you do? I would stand just, there, you know, like the, the, the dancing guy from the Boston's or, you know, whatever, you know, and, and, uh, um, sorry to the dancing guy from the Boston's. I mean, you know, I would just, <laughs> you know, you know, no diss on him. Right. And, and, and uh, um, you know, I would just not play or I would do like a, you know, you know, kind of thing. Um, but a few years into it, I'm like, you know, Hey, I feel really like, you know, ridiculous standing there not playing, you know, you guys want to teach me how to play that, that, you know, cause I knew how to play, you, you know, when hardcore guys or metal guys try and play ska, it's just always just a fucking tragedy. Right. You know, it's just stiff. Sure. It, it's so stiff. And, and, uh, and that's how I played ska, you know, like, yeah, I heard some clash records, you know, I'll, let me show you, you know, and, 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 you know, Ezra and, and, Sturgeon were like, no, 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 you know, here's how you do it. And, 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 uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's percussive, you know, you got to fucking loosen up, relax, you know, it's, it's like a, you know, it's like playing a drum, you know what I mean? It's like, um, uh, it's not like, you know, I had to approach it, um, uh, not like a guitar. Right. And, and so, uh, you know, they worked on me, you know, I don't know if I'm any better at playing it. You know, certainly, I guess better playing it now than I was, um, but I understand the concept. You know, and and I, you know, I would see reggae bands and and uh, and, and watch how those guys played, and they were, you know, it was just very, uh, um, it was, it, it, you know, it was less deliberate, you know, than than just fucking hitting a bar chord, and you know, um, it's really a very, uh, um, uh, you know, it's very subtle. And and I, I love the sound of it. I do. I really do. You know, um, to, to hear a, a person, you know, a good ska guitar player that can really play ska is like, yeah, I mean, that's like a, a, a you know, uh, it, it's a talent. You know, it takes um, it takes skill. You know, you just can't. Uh, uh, at least that's my opinion. You know, yeah, it definitely, yeah, it definitely does. Yeah. And I've seen, you know, many a metal guy, you know, like, okay, we're going to, many a hardcore guy, here's the ska breakdown. And it's just, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's just not that easy. And I'm not a ska guy, not that I'm an authority on playing ska, but, you know, uh, they really worked on me to, but no, you're only hitting two strings, buddy, you know, two strings. Play here on the, play with your right hand on the neck, you know, it'll help. It's a strange thing with ska. Usually a band that has a, a little bit of ska is basically a ska band and is yeah. basically embraced by the ska people. And the non-ska people go, that's a ska band, even if like 10% of the band's music is ska. Right? It's, that's, that's the weird thing about ska. But you guys were definitely an exception to that. Like, I feel like you were more considered like a crust punk band than anything else, you know? That was the thing that you were mostly, and then you did stuff. You did other stuff too. Right, right. Like, let me ask you, what what, what do you consider Citizen Fish? Me personally, I, I say ska or ska punk or whatever, you know. I mean, I guess the Citizen Fish is another band that is, you know, definitely in that category. But, you know, in my mind, I, I consider them in the ska category. Okay. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I see, I never thought of Citizen Fish as a ska, because <laughs> a ska band, majority of their music is, is ska music. And, and, you know, maybe it's, uh, you know, because of the subhumans connection or, you know, I don't know. Um, but uh, they're a very good band. But they were, you know, uh, them and uh, was the the band before them was uh, cult, Culture. Culture Shock. Yeah. Culture Shock, yeah, culture baby. Shock, yeah. yeah. We're talking about like ska punk, you know, that predates Sop Ivy, you know, that. Yes. You know, so they're a very significant band that don't really get their due the much as much as they deserve it. I agree. I totally agree. They have some great, great songs. Really great songs. Plus, Dick Lucas is, is a delightful person. Oh, Dick Lucas is the man. Yeah. Dick is the man. Yeah. So doing these interviews, like the interviewees felt like very honest and it didn't always feel like everyone had good feelings towards other people you know like it didn't feel like everyone had all healed and now they're telling stories necessarily i don't know what the reality is but yeah yeah was it a challenging experience to go through the, these histories that may have not really been you know maybe everyone's not cool with everybody but we're still digging up this history How, what was that experience like for you guys I, I mean, I think that's the book's strongest asset, honestly. The book is not rah, 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 Leftover Crack is the best band ever, and everyone loves them. And, and they, you know, formed, broke up, and got back together, and it was the best time ever. You know, that, that that's not the book. The book is a very honest take on Leftover Crack, the fantastic highs and then the low lows. And I think Leftover Crack has both. Um, so, so the funniest thing was when interviewing people, a lot of people have very different perspectives on things and very different memories on things. And, and we, we, instead of trying to figure out what the truth was, because you never will, we just put them both in there and let people disagree. And, and it, I mean, if anything, I, I wouldn't say that was difficult because it seemed like for the most part, people were ready to unload, you know, you know, here's why I hate Brad Logan, which isn't in the book because everyone loves Brad Logan, you know, but that kind of thing, you know, and, and I will say. Pretty much everybody was a good sport about it. Like, like we we you know we ran it past everybody. Everybody was a good sport and say, "Well, I don't like this guy, or I don't like that guy." But also, I I think more than anything, I there's very few people in the book that says I hate leftover crack or I love leftover crack. People have very mixed emotions about the band. Um, Bill Cashman, uh, an early leftover crack manager, members of leftover crack. Bill Cashman um, was the first leftover crack fan. Fan, I'm sorry, not ever manager. in the beginning. Yeah. There was Bill Cashman. <laughs> I'm um, sorry. Continue. Even other musicians, like like um, even Dick Lucas, you know, ha has mixed emotions on the band, and 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 uh, well, I don't want to put any words in his mouth. Penny Rimbaud of Crass has has mixed mixed opinions of the band, you know, and so. If I forgot exactly where I was going with this, but the point was that wasn't difficult. Honestly, that was one of the most interesting things. And I think that's one of the things that really makes the book good is there are different opinions and it is as an objective view of the band as we could make it be without saying rah, 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 leftover crack is the best, but also not like Motley Crue. We're like, here's all the bad things they did. You know, it, we, we tried to give an honest portrayal of the band. So, I mean, for a lot of people, it was cathartic to say all their like, grievances to air their grievances basically and to but it's, yeah it's not just grievances though i mean I, I mean let's not let's not paint as strictly negative a lot of people have a lot of really nice things to say about the band dick lucas uh uh, uh bill cashman you know people have negative things also say positive so, i mean the book isn't all doom and gloom I, I don't want the listeners to think that no i didn't mean it like that i just meant like um 
was it a you know my, what I was getting at is like you know there's a lot of like sore spots to go over and was like that. Well, sure. I mean, it's a band called leftover crack, you know, I mean, I mean like interpersonal issues is what I'm saying. Like interpersonal and like people were anxious to talk about it. And it sounds like people were anxious to get it off their chest, you know, like I would say so versus like, Oh God, I do not want to relive that stuff or, you know, yeah, I, I mean, there were some people, I guess, that didn't want to talk too much, you know, and then so we said, all right, well, what do you want to say? And they say what they want to say. And that was that. But for the most part, people were anxious to say about the great fun they had with the band. And the, like, like one, one of the crazy, I don't know if the crazy, but one of the most fun part of the books is the, is, um, uh, the, the, uh, donut social where, where, uh, Ed Sturgeon and Chris of team spider run from the cops, you know? And so they're having a lot of fun there. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, we didn't really have to like really squeeze anybody. People just kind of showed up and said, here's the story. Here's the fun parts. Here's the not fun parts. You know, when I approached people to do these, um, you know, I knew specifically the, the, the incidents and, and the, uh, um, you know, I knew the things that I wanted to talk about and, uh, you know, people were like, you know, Hey, uh, you know, I don't know if I should say this and that. And, and, and I wanted them to, to understand that they were free to say exactly what was on their mind and exactly how they felt that this wasn't a, um, this wasn't going to be a press release, you know, and, and paint the band and, you know, uh, any one way or the other, I wanted it to be, um, you know, a, a mix, you know, what I feel the band is, is just a, a mixture of so many things, you know, um, positive, negative. And, and, uh, um, so I let people, you know, and, and John did too. I mean, we just let them cut loose and say what they had to say, you know, and, and I hope it's reflected in, in the book that way, you know, that, that, um, and, and I think that's the key. I know that the oral histories that, that I, that are my favorite, that I really like to read, uh, and, and really that's my favorite, you know, sort of format for, you know, reading about, um, you know, not only a band, but, you know, like the Edie Sedgwick, you know, and, 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 and then this one I was telling you about nine or 11, it's, it's great because it gives you so many perspectives, you know, and, and, it, it, you know, it's, it's up to the reader to, you know, to decide, you know, what's, you know, what perspective is, is, you know, is what happened really, you know, how did this play out? You know, or, or if, if somebody had, you know, negative feelings, it's like, say them. Yes. Fucking speak state. I appreciated that about the book. I appreciated the contradictions, the honesty, the, yeah, just getting it out there. I mean, I, I love, I love reading like oral history where it's like person A says this and then person B says something that's like a completely different point of view about what happened. Right. Cause isn't that what a discussion, you know, you're having a discussion with 10 of your friends. Isn't that how that goes down? You know? Yeah. So our friend Brent Friedman, who's uh, I know you, you, Brad, you know, him. Brent yes. Friedman. Yes. I have a Brent question. Well, so he told me that um, the, uh, what was it? The uh, secret, <laughs> the secret leftover crack Jesse Michaels show. So, you tapped him to book that. I want to hear a little bit more about this show, kind of behind the scenes of that. So he said, ask about the Bridgetown DIY show that he booked? No, he didn't ask me to. I just know that he told me that um, you tapped him to book that show. And it's, I know he just, it's a, to him, it's like a really special memory. So, um, and it's an, it was amazing footage. I mean, I wasn't there, but I saw the footage. So I, I'm just curious a little bit, just anything you want to say about that show or just kind of putting that thing together. Because everyone who's seen it has just flipped out, you know, Jesse Michaels. 
playing, uh, singing, playing with you guys, doing Op Ivy songs and all that? Uh, you know, I think, yeah, I think I probably ran into, you know, Brent at, at our local grocery store and, uh, which is a con. Yeah. He says that he's, he says that he's seen you at multiple grocery stores. By the That's way. kind of our thing, right? That's where we'll, you know, we'll meet and we'll discuss, you know, we'll solve the world's problems, you know, and, and, and at the checkout, you know, at the self checkout. So, um, yeah, I think I probably ran into him and, and said, you know, hey, you know, we want to do the show. And, uh, um, you know, um, I think we vi- we were doing a video, too, maybe. can't remember. I don't know if we did a video or not. But, hey, do you know anywhere we could play? And it was kind of last minute. And he's like, yep, I'm going to talk to this place, Bridgetown DIY, which is in uh, El Monte and, and uh, a great space, you know. Um, and and so he set up the show and and uh uh we are the union opened and uh, so it was us and them and uh um uh it was funny i mean it was like you know we were you know we knew we were going to we we <laughs> we had talked uh uh you know uh Jesse into doing some op ivy songs reluctantly with us you know and and uh i think uh you know, Sturgeon talks about it in the, the book for a little bit. You know, he, he wasn't like, you know, ah, that sounds like a great idea. He's like, ah, all right. You know, and, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we kind of trapped him, you know, into doing it. And, and uh, but it was a big deal for us, you know, and uh, um, we, well, it's not like he does that often. So it was a pretty amazing thing to have pulled. He off. doesn't do that often. No, yeah. at all. So we were we were honored. Really, we were, and uh, you know, we the, we played. The funny thing is, there was only probably fifty people there, you know, and and um, you know, it was pissing rain outside, you know, on a week night, uh, and it you know, it never rains here, right? And and uh, it was pissing rain. So plus, this club is like super hard to get to. It's like the you know, not easy access, not by the freeway. You have to get off the freeway and drive through like neighborhood after neighborhood, and finally, it's like a you know, just this little storefront strip mall, basically. And, and, um, uh, so there was just the right amount of people there, you know, Uh, it it wasn't packed out and and everybody got to get crazy and have fun. And, and it was just so cool. You know, it it was just, um, uh, uh, it was really low key and a lot of fun. The footage, like, and I just can imagine being there. Everyone seems like they turned into a um, the the fourteen year old selves. Just like we all lost our shit of, when Jesse started yeah. singing with us. We did, right? <laughs> it's like we played our set, and it was like, yeah, 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 big fucking deal. But when Jesse came out and did those Hop Ivy songs with us, it was like everybody lost their shit, you know, us included. It's like, are we really doing? Are we really doing this? You know. I remember that going through my mind. Is this, are we really doing this? Is this really happening? Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you haven't already, subscribe to my newsletter at aaroncarns.substack.com. You will get episodes of the In Defense of Ska podcast and other content sent directly to your inbox. If you would like to order my book, In Defense of Ska, you can go to Amazon, request it at your favorite indie bookstore or library, or go to clashbooks.com. And on that note, we'll leave you by saying, Ska now more than ever. Thank you. Man,
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.